Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Now is the time to accelerate innovation. T-Mobile for Business is powering Formula One Las Vegas Grand Prix operations and epic fan experiences with secure, reliable 5G connectivity. Because an event this big and this fast deserves a network that can set the pace. See what our 5G advanced network solutions can do for your business at T-Mobile.com slash now. View 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Pushkin. This show contains adult language and occasional descriptions of violence. Please keep that in mind when choosing when and where to listen. Previously, on Death of an Artist. I started to leave the gallery, and then I thought, wait a minute, what if it's art? And I went and asked, and it was art, and I got so excited. It was a revolutionary moment. This guy is now wooing her the way he loves wooing, with champagne, expensive dinners. And this is somebody who's writing down, I have 10 cents that I used to put on a stamp or whatever. That's enticing. She was not a fearful person, except, interestingly, when it came to heights. The last person to talk to Anna before she died, other than Carl, was her close friend, Natalia Delgado. She knew the marriage was not working. They were on the phone. Anna was sure Carl was seeing another woman, and she had a plan for how she was going to prove it. She almost knew it was crazy. She said, I think you and I should put on some wigs and dress like other people, and let's see if we can, like, take some pictures of him. You should do it, because he won't recognize you. And I said, oh, are you crazy? I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Carl was in the apartment as the two women spoke, possibly within earshot. Carl was in the background, and so I said, well, maybe you should be speaking in Spanish. But still, there were words that were the same, you know, like detective and divorce. It's the, the same words, you know. So I think that he probably could figure out what she was talking about. As far as Natalia knew, Anna never hired a detective. But she had talked to an attorney about how to file for divorce on grounds of infidelity, and she had said she was gathering evidence. 
She was making photocopies of all of the receipts from his American Express card and his phone bills. She's trying to reconstruct the events of the affairs, and she wanted to use that for her divorce on grounds of infidelity. I thought it was better to tell him and say, look, this is what I've accumulated. I want a divorce, and I have evidence of this. Did she ever say or sound like she was afraid of him? Yes, that night. But I had no idea because she said he had a temper before, but I had no idea how that he could get really violent. And she said, yeah, he's going to blow up. If I have this conversation with him, he's really going to blow up. It was late, and Natalia said she had to go. So I said I would call her the next day. She said, wake me up. So I called her in the morning. And I got Carl. I said, I need to speak with Anna. And he said, she's not here. And I said, well, when, when will she be back? He said, I don't know. I said, well, please tell her I called. And he said, I will. This detail astounds me. Anna's best friend calls the morning Anna died, and Carl doesn't tell her what's happened, but agrees to pass on a message. Natalia has been sitting with this for decades. You know, it's something that's very painful for me because I thought it's better to tell him and say, look, this is what I've accumulated. I want a divorce. It never occurred to me that he would kill her. I'm your host, Helen Molesworth, and from Pushkin Industries, Something Else, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Death of an Artist. Episode 3, The Feminist Cabal. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information, so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to lifelock.com slash iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at lifelock.com slash iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. 
Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase Bank, NA member, FDIC, copyright 2024. JPMorgan Chase & Co. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Even when the whole world was arranged to keep her away from what she wanted, Anna was invested in trying to change things. She wanted to go home to Cuba, the home she hadn't seen since age 12. But icy Cold War relations between the U.S. and the island made travel between the two countries impossible. Exiles were not allowed to return to Cuba. You, you leave and it was like you're a traitor and that's it, it's over. That's Coco Fusco, an artist and the author of Dangerous Moves, Performance and Politics in Cuba. And this was deeply traumatic for people who left family members there, left homes, left lives. I grew up in a world in which like all my relatives were like crying about Cuba all the time. So Anna pushed to change it. There were some groups of younger Cuban exiles like Anna who had come as children who in the 70s organized politically to reopen the possibility of family reunification flights. She was one of the Cubans from the American side who sat down with people in the Cuban government and tried to bring the two sides together. That's pretty daring. And they succeeded. And in 1979, those flights began. 150,000 Cubans went in the first few years of this. In 1980, Anna made her first trip back to Cuba, where she was able to reunite with her grandparents and extended family. It was a return to her roots. Here's how Anna, voiced here by the Cuban artist Tanya Bruguera, explained it. I find that my roots are Cuban. The branches might be American, but the trunk of the tree is Cuban, or the roots, you know? Anna started to travel to Cuba often, and these visits opened up a whole new world for her, politically, socially, and artistically. On one of those trips, she made what I personally consider to be one of her most beautiful pieces, a striking group of petroglyphs carved directly into cave walls, located in a dense patch of tropical jungle in Jaruco. 
More than three decades after she made them, an artist and fan of Anna Mendieta's named Elise Rasmussen set out to find them. She recorded a video of her journey through the overgrowth and into the cave. Oh, shit. We found one of the sculptures. I don't know which one offhand. Show us. You can see... See the head shape, vagina. I really thought that all of them would be destroyed, gone. There's others. He's telling me there's others. The wall reliefs Mendieta left behind are thickly carved lines cut directly into the limestone walls. Then she took luminous black and white photographs of them. The images resemble a primordial female form from the Neolithic period. Clearly, Cuba meant a great deal to Anna. It's no easy task to carve into a stone wall. And no matter how deep in the jungle this cave was, no matter how hard the sculptures were to find, to leave a mark like that says, I was here, I'm from here, and I plan to remain here. While in Cuba, Anna also explored her interest in the Afro-Cuban religion, Santeria. She was finding a way into the culture. That's Ella Troiano again, one of Anna's Cuban friends in New York. You have to understand that Afro-Cuban culture permeated the entirety of all the classes in Cuba. Anna had grown up Catholic with all of those images of sacrifice and blood. And as a little girl, she also liked to listen to the maids in the kitchen talking about their religion, Santeria, with its images of blood and sacrifice. That interest was already visible in her work. Her early grad school performances include references to Santeria rituals through her use of candles and chicken sacrifice. But Ella Troiano makes the distinction that Anna was more student than practitioner. She was not a Santera. She was not dressed in white. There is a very big difference between a practitioner of Santeria and somebody who studies or uses it as a way of of working with the culture. In fact, there's been criticism of Anna that she was working with a religion that she really didn't know enough about. Anna was interested in excavating her Cuban identity. But her trips weren't only about her. She regularly brought American artists and critics to Havana, hoping to build a cultural pipeline between her two worlds. This wasn't to everyone's liking, and her attempt to challenge the status quo earned her a visit from the FBI. For the first time in my career as an art historian, I found myself looking at copies of heavily redacted FBI files. In September of 1983, just before she left for Rome, an agent arrived at Anna's little apartment to question her about her trips. Her answers must have been satisfactory. The agent recommended the matter be closed. But it wasn't just the FBI who perceived her as a threat. She's threatening. She is not like a pretty little girl, you know, making pretty paintings. That's Sarah Thornton a sociologist whose book Seven Days in the Art World is an in-depth study of the network of galleries, art schools, and auction houses that make up the art community. Her work is a threat to patriarchy. She's playing with gender and the body every single time. 
whether it's wearing beards and mustaches, her use of blood. For me, she is experimenting with the things done to women's bodies under patriarchy. And she's revealing it. I agree with Sarah. Anna's work does feel like a threat to patriarchy. Anna was not a well-behaved woman. She was literally playing with blood and fire. She's hiking into a jungle to make a carving of a vagina on a cave wall. Her studio equipment included chainsaws and gunpowder. This is a major badass. And badasses are enthralling. And when they are women, they also tend to be threatening. When Anna left for Italy in 1983, she was thrilled to have the opportunity to spend an entire year, all expenses paid, on the lush grounds of the American Academy in Rome. This was Anna's chance to live in a city literally filled with art. Sculptures, paintings, and frescoes are everywhere, on buildings and churches and in parks. It was a dream. But not everything at the studio was to her liking. And, as my grandmother would have said, she made a stink. She kind of uh, mobilized a group of people to, uh, to protest conditions at the academy. She came in with a list of demands, mm. and uh, I don't think the academy was really used to that. They were sort of used to people being docile. That's Chris Haub, a painter who was at the academy with Anna. He describes how she made a bad first impression, but then organized some of her peers and got the academy to make improvements that helped everyone. The original impression was, who is this pain in the ass? Why is she more appreciative and respectful, of, you know, and all of that? But I think by the end, they realized that there was something about her. and uh, She had the guys completely redo her skylight. And I think it probably led to a uh, kind of uh, reconstruction of the skylights all around the building, hmm. right? just uh, based on her complaint. There it is again. Anna, the outspoken one, not afraid to nibble at the hand that's feeding her. Anna's time in Rome was her own. For most of her fellowship, Carl was back home in New York or working in Germany. So he wasn't there when Natalia Delgado came to visit Anna at the academy. I stayed with her a week, and so she announces, I'm not here to babysit you, which of course I wasn't expecting, but she was like very clear. Anna gave Natalia a book of walking tours so Natalia could roam the city while Anna worked in the studio. She had started to experiment with freestanding sculptures made out of wood that she was burning with a blowtorch. In the evenings, the two friends went to the movies. They saw Apocalypse Now, and they also went dancing. But Natalia's visit wasn't only for fun. She came carrying news from New York. I told her about the rumors that Carl was was having affairs. She basically like called it off with Carl and said, you know, it's over for us, you know, and she was wanting to make a new life for herself. But Carl and Anna had been in a cycle of breaking up and getting back together for several years, and it would continue. But then he decided to go out and court her. It was very sick, I thought. Very, very surprising to me that somebody breaks up with you because you're having relationships with other people. And what you do is, the reaction is, you go to see the person to try to get them back. And that's what he did. And that's when he proposed marriage to her. And Anna said yes. 
She gave it a chance, you know. She wasn't going to find somebody outside of the art world, I didn't think. You know, somebody who would understand that vocation, you know. She had a vocation. I mean, she never wanted to have children. I get it. Anna was independent, driven. Her whole life revolved around and stemmed from her art practice. She needed to be with someone who would understand that. The two got married in Rome in January of 1985. Their close friend, Carol LeWitt, was at the wedding. She was radiant. I'll never forget mm. how she looked. Um, Very. Absolutely beautiful. Do you remember what she was wearing? Yeah, she was wearing a gray knit dress and pearls. And I found her great beauty. Mm-hmm. The newlyweds started their next chapter with a honeymoon in Egypt, a place full of art that commemorates death. Anna had wanted to go for a while. Anna was so interested in death that she once said, I don't think you can separate death and life. And we can see how her meditations on death showed up in her art. For two works that I believe are on view by Anna, A-N-A Mendieta, M-E-N. D-I-E-T-A. They currently have art on display in Gallery 203. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. No problem. Thanks. My producer Louisa and I decided to go to a museum to see one of Anna's pieces. And what we're looking at is a work from 1984. So, you know, Mendieta dies in 85. And... What we're looking at is a form that looks like an outline, maybe like a silhouette of a mummy. It's called Nile Born, N-I-L-E Born. Anna's interest in Egypt was so deep that she was even dreaming about it. She recounted a dream to a friend in which she and Carl were the king and queen of Egypt at sail on a river surrounded by thousands of snakes. So I wasn't surprised to see that her sculpture from this period resembled a sarcophagus. It looks like it's made out of dirt that's held together with some kind of binder. Uh, It's really thin. In the interior, there's a very extenuated teardrop form, slightly raised in a roll. It intimates the interior of the body. It intimates legs that spread open. It intimates the, you know, the interior space of the vagina. Louisa noticed that it looked like an outline of a dead body or a coffin. And that is exactly one of the things that has made Anna's art so chilling in the aftermath of her death. She's in the space of of death for sure. So I think you gleaning that makes perfect sense to me. Almost all art is connected to the problem of death because one of the things art is, big story of objects that we have decided we are going to save. But being interested in or making art about death isn't the same as wanting to die. It seems clear that Anna had so much more work she wanted to do. This is like the moment when I actually find I get angry. Because that's made in 1984 and she died in 1985. So we actually don't know whether or not she thought that was successful. 
did she keep making them? What would she have done with that idea moving forward? This is the tragedy of the artist who dies young. We simply don't know how their work would have matured, how it might have changed over time. Anna's work was very dynamic, and in her short career, the work changed quite a bit, from her use of blood, to her use of nature, to the final freestanding sculptures in her studio. Her work was already changing and growing. All of that potential violently halted. And my moment of anger in a museum in 2022, it gave me some small insight into how angry Anna's friends and family must have been when Carl showed up at her memorial. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. 
It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply. Let's go back to the morning of September 8th, 1985, and to Natalia Delgado just hours after Anna's death. Remember, Natalia called that morning, and Carl had answered. She asked Carl to have Anna call her back, and he said he would, even though Anna was already dead. So I asked her. Did you call a second time? Yeah, because she didn't call me back. On her second call, the person who answered the phone was one of Carl's lawyers, Jerry Rosen. Carl was at the police station, but he had sent Jerry back to the apartment to collect some documents. Here he is in a 1988 interview describing that phone call with Natalia. Phone's ringing, I pick it up, and she says, Anna there. And I decided to tell her. I said, uh, Anna's dead. And that Carl is in jail, charged. And that I'm Carl's lawyer. I think he just said, Anna is dead. And I was like, oh my God. You know, I, I, I was in disbelief. Remember, Natalia's a lawyer. She realized something was off. I just said, well, what are you doing in there? Isn't that apartment blocked off, cordoned off? And he said, well, yes, but uh, he was in there. He went in. Then I thought Carl must have killed her. When she learned that her friend was dead and that Carl's lawyer was in what was now possibly a crime scene, Natalia immediately got in touch with the NYPD. She told them about her last phone call with Anna, that Anna had been making copies of telephone and credit card bills to prove Carl was cheating, and that she was planning on filing for divorce. I was concerned about, particularly since I had spoken to Jerry Rosen, about what was in the apartment that, you know, that her evidence wouldn't disappear. We'll come back to this later, to the mysterious story of what happened to the Xerox copies of telephone and credit card bills. For now, in the immediate aftermath of Anna's death, news of what happened was spreading quickly. Some of Anna's friends began planning a memorial service. Many were art stars in their own right, heavyweights in the burgeoning feminist art movement. But it was complicated. Several of Anna's friends were also friends of Carl's. One of them, the extremely influential art critic Lucy Lepard, who played a major role in planning the service, had even been Carl's lover before he met Anna. The art world was small, and Anna's death was starting to divide it. There were those who believed Carl, that she jumped, or that maybe it was a terrible accident. And there were those, including many who identified as feminists, who were convinced that he had a hand in her death. The memorial service brought these two opposing factions into one elegant room. The memorial was in a landmarked building on Park Avenue called the Salon Boulevard. It had the grandeur of a high society mansion, 
Imagine Roman columns and crystal chandeliers. One of the many artists in attendance was a woman named Anne Minich. She described the service to the journalist Robert Katz. The audio on this archival tape is a little hard to follow. They had music that Anna loved, and they had flowers that Anna loved. Some of her Cuban friends brought a record player and the old-fashioned Afro-Cuban music that Anna loved to dance to. Anne said tons of people showed up, including Carl. And it was in this huge room, and there were huge amounts of people there, including Carl Andre, who came. And of course, he would have had to come because, because his defense was that she committed suicide. It was an impossible predicament. On the one hand, Carl wasn't welcome. And on the other hand, not showing up would have been tantamount to an admission of guilt. On the day of the memorial, Lucy Lepard had a difficult task. She had to tell Anna's family that Carl would be in attendance. Anna's sister made it clear that the family did not want to see him. Lepard had already prepared for this by seating Carl in one area and reserving seats for the family in another, such that they couldn't see each other. Here's Anne Minich again. He sat over in the corner and... A lot of people, he's a very powerful man, went over and they felt very bad for him and blah, blah, blah. And it was, you know, it was, it was probably a little hard to take for some people mm-hmm. uh, that he was being comforted as much as he was because... Ann Minich doesn't finish her sentence there, but it's not hard to fill in the blanks. For the folks who thought he killed her, his appearance must have been galling. They had this set up this this slideshow that was continuous of her work, the mm-hmm. slide, the documentation of her work since from the time she was at Iowa. Mm-hmm. And then after a while, they asked people to start giving testimonials. The way Anne remembered it, nobody sugar-coated their memories of Anna. They described her as she was. It came out that Anna was a difficult person. It gave the thing a reality. In other words, this was we were not memorializing a saint who was being assumed into heaven. Uh, it was a very impressive service. The, the most distasteful thing about the whole thing was Carl Andre being there with his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Was that his girlfriend? Well, I understood that that was his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And she would walk across the room and she would go get coffee or whatever they were serving and she would bring it back to him. And he, he sat like a bump in this place, and he was like a specter. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a, it was a strange thing to see. I mean, no matter what happened, this has got to be a terrible thing for him. Mm-hmm. How you saw Carl sitting in the corner depended entirely on whether you thought he bore any responsibility for Anna's death. But however uncomfortable his presence was, Anna's presence loomed larger. Oh, I know that the memorial service was completely impressive. It was very well done. It was, uh, you got a real sense of how these the women were willing to pull behind her. Anna's memorial was the first gathering where it was clear just how ruthlessly this small community had been torn apart. That night divided the Soho art world and the tale of the two Carls began. There was guilty Carl and innocent Carl. There was Carl the person and Carl the artist. There were those who loved Anna and wanted to see him convicted, and others who loved Carl 
and wanted to protect him. And when these two groups of people would meet in a gallery, on the street, at a bar or restaurant, which inevitably happened, things could get dramatic. Honest friend Ella Troiano remembered an encounter with Carl. He was at a diner, and at some point I used to yell at him that he was a murderer. But, you know, he didn't do anything. He wasn't going to be confrontational. His thing is manipulation and silence. Here's Carl's friend and fellow artist, Lawrence Wiener. Well, sometimes people would scream at you on the street. I would usually just ignore it, just stare at them. The majority of people who had something to say were quite provincial people. It was quite a confrontational thing. People saw this as the demarking of Mm -hmm. uh, a feminist issue. The feminist issue, as Lawrence Wiener called it, began when it became clear that Anna's friends were pushing for the investigation. The women who knew Anna best knew the following things. She was excited about her work and had plans for the future. She was about to file for divorce. She was afraid of heights. And they knew that if they wanted justice, they'd have to fight like hell for it. These women included Natalia Delgado, who was herself a lawyer, B. Ruby Rich, who was writing for the Village Voice and had the power of the pen, and Anna's devoted sister, Raclean. And they were all talking to the young assistant DA, Martha Bashford, who in her five years on the job had already seen plenty of cases of men assaulting their wives, girlfriends, daughters, or nieces. These women were prepared to use whatever power and influence they had to convict Carl Andre. And the pro-Carl camp, the friends who bailed him out of jail and decided there was, quote, nothing more to say, they took note of this group of women. And that's how the journalist Robert Katz entered the picture. He had covered the art world. He understood that Carl Andre was already a canonical figure. And one of Carl's supporters told him, quote, the poor guy is being victimized by a feminist cabal. The folks who supported Carl simply assumed that Katz would be on their side, which is, of course, why they asked him to look into the case. But that's not what happened. Here's a bit from his interview over dinner with Carol and Saul LeWitt. Have you uncovered anything that's shocking in the course of this digging around? Uh, the biggest shocking thing that I've encountered is a, a strange kind of uh, networking that uh, went to, to protect us. Have you talked to Paula Cooper, for instance? I have talked to her very What was her... Uh, well, Paula is very... Uh, was she part of the network? Yeah. She was one of the people who wanted me to write about this, but from really from... From Carl, from their point of view, uh, that was that there's some sort of... What exactly is that, their point of view? That at one point there was what they believe was a feminist cabal that was sort of out to get it Mm -hmm. with the district attorney. So they thought it was something like some evil force behind it. So when I got to look into it, I didn't agree with them. But that, that it was some sort of a plot. What is their scenario for the event? They would like to accept whatever he said. I mean, he, he said very little. What is his? What is his? Well, that, uh, the problem with his story was that he contradicted himself for a time that, that first day, and then his lawyer told him to shut up and said he's never said a word after. I wish there was a feminist cabal. I don't think there was one. (laughs) And I I don't think there is one now. 
That's Connie Butler, chief curator at the Hammer Museum, who legendarily organized the most comprehensive exhibition of feminist art to date. Connie is one of the most respected curators in the art world. A cabal is just another word for, in a way, a witch hunt. You know, it's just, it's generations old stories and fear of women and the power that they might have if they really were to organize. Just for fun, I looked up cabal in the dictionary. It means a secret political clique or faction. And it's true that B. Ruby Rich and Natalia Delgado and a few other women had meetings with the assistant DA. It's true there was a letter-writing campaign and a series of phone calls and meetings to see if any of Carl's exes would verify rumors that he had been violent. Nothing came of it. But it wasn't a secret. The folks agitating for Anna were highly vocal, and it certainly wasn't all the feminists banding together against Carl. Notably, both Lucy Lepard and Paula Cooper, two of the most powerful women in the art world, would not speak out against him. As B. Ruby Rich wrote in The Village Voice, the folks who supported Anna were, quote, the feminist artists, Latino artists, Black writers, and unintimidated Cubans, all of whom had, as she would say, more passion than power. So, not exactly a cabal. And what's underneath that, of course, is, you know, a long history and deeply rooted misogyny that gets thrown around too easily in circumstances like this. It's easy to blame the feminist cabal. Yep. Blaming feminism definitely has a history. And it wasn't only Carl's protectors back then who used this kind of language, in which they imagine a coordinated plot, in which they are the victims rather than the women who they've harmed. We still hear this kind of thinking from our entertainers, politicians, and even Supreme Court justices. No one can question your effort, but your coordinated and well-funded effort to destroy my good name and destroy my family. After Anna's memorial, the criminal justice system slowly turned its wheels. Martha Bashford, the assistant DA, made two attempts to indict Carl. And both times she succeeded in getting the grand jury to agree with her and indict him on murder charges. And both times, those indictments were thrown out on technicalities. Even though the judge wrote, quote, it appears that there may still remain sufficient evidence to sustain the indictment. It was coming up on a year since her death, and Team Anna was starting to fear that the DA's office might drop the case completely. So B. Ruby Rich made a Hail Mary pass in the pages of The Village Voice. The reason I wrote the article on the first anniversary of her death was to try to raise the profile of the case again in public and make it too embarrassing for the district attorney to drop the case and let Carl off the hook. In that article, B. Ruby Rich wrote the following. A woman artist tells Anna's sister some damaging information about Andre, then retracts it after consulting with her husband. A businessman tells an artist friend of mine a story about Andre ripping up a bar in the 60s, then denies it to a reporter. Another woman artist still remembers Andre's verbal viciousness towards his first wife, but she won't go public either. I believed that this had killed feminism. I thought it was a sense of someone this tough, this strong, this brilliant, this passionate as Anna 
could be killed, then any of us could be killed. If it could happen to her, then nobody stood a chance. B. Ruby Rich hoped her article would bring women forward, women who could verify the rumors circulating about Carl. Sadly, nobody came forward as a result of that article. However, it did accomplish its main goal, which was to actually get the indictment and bring him to trial. And that last indictment stuck. And then when they assigned a new assistant DA and it went to trial, I felt, wow, it really did work. Carl Andre was about to be tried for murder. Next time on Death of an Artist. Jack Hoffinger stood up and said, my client wishes to waive a jury. No one could remember the last time anybody had ever waived a jury in a murder trial. It's a very, very rare event. That was truly an amazing surprise. She was not going to throw herself out a window. Did its squalidness ever make you not want to go and see his show? No. I kept going to see the shows. There was this crazy thing called artistic license, which meant that artists get excused because whatever it is that they produce is so much more important than whatever damage they could do to people in their lives. Death of an Artist is a co-production between Pushkin Industries, Something Else, and Sony Music Entertainment. Written and hosted by me, Helen Molesworth. Executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, Tal Malad, Jacob Weisberg, and Lucas Werner. Produced by Maria Luisa Tucker. Editing by Lizzie Jacobs. Our managing producer is Jacob Smith. Associate producers are Pooj Rue and Eloise Linton. Additional production help by Tali Abacassis. Ana Mendieta's quotes were read by Tanya Bruguera. Engineered by Sam Baer. Fact-checking by Andrea Lopez Cruzado. Our theme song is by Pooj Rue. Special thanks to Elise Rasmussen. If you love this show, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus to listen early, ad-free, and get exclusive bonus content. Look for the Pushkin Plus channel on Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. Find more great podcasts from Sony Music Entertainment at sonymusic.com backslash podcasts. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's. Because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Digital trends show up every day in business decisions and actions. West Monroe is the number one strategic partner translating technology into financial value for companies. 
The This Is Digital podcast applies West Monroe's two decades of secrets and best practices to your business's benefit. Favorite past topics from the last three seasons include how AI and the next generation of employees are shaping the workplace, becoming a product company, Highmark's journey, and what does it mean to put the customer first? Learn more at westmonroe.com.